0: the lack of a reminder take your bibles and turn to hosea chapter 11 if you would please with me this morning hosea chapter 11 we're going to read this chapter most of it in just a moment but i would like you to have your bibles open and ready if you don't have a copy of the bible you can use the one in the pew you could take it with you if you don't have a bible at all but you'll find it on page 905 hosea chapter 11 is on 905 in the pew bibles uh, it's one of those little books towards the end of the Hebrew Scriptures right before the book of Matthew, Mark, Luke. Um, while you're turning I'll mention one other thing. I got a text yesterday and I was going to post a picture and I forgot next week. Melanie Birkenbein had her baby on Friday. So we've been praying for John and Melanie. John and Melanie are going to be in the process of moving to Millersville to serve full-time with Navigators and the campus of Millersville University. We've been praying for her. Uh, Caleb John is his name. And uh, we'll show you pictures next week. So my fault. Uh, this is a friendly reminder for some of you. Uh, next week is Father's Day, next Sunday. Uh, I don't know if you know this or not, but Mother's Day is the holiday in the United States. Mother's Day is the holiday in the United States where the most phone calls are placed. No phone call, no more phone calls are placed than on Mother's Day. Father's Day is the holiday in the United States where the most collect calls are made. <laughs> so, hmm... Uh, This week, you might spend some time, just a little bit of time, maybe if if nothing else, than when you're picking out a card, thinking about your dad and what you appreciate about him. Uh, This week, I read about a father who sets a very high standard. In fact, he sets a a standard so high that uh, very few people that I know would be able to meet this standard. His, His name is Dale Hahn, and several years ago, the Los Angeles Times did an article about Him. Dale's son, uh, Corey, was a very skilled baseball player, and and Dale, just like every uh, Little League father, took his son, drove his son all over the place to games and practices. He was always on the sidelines. He bought the equipment, the balls, the gloves, the bats, everything. Uh, When Corey graduated from high school, he was recruited by the San Diego Padres. They offered to pay him $300,000 a year, which is not a bad starting salary for a young man one year out of high school. Not bad. <laughs> um, Corey, though, decided actually that he wanted to hone his skills a little bit more before he entered the major league, so he went on a full scholarship to Arizona State University. His dad was there uh, all the way through uh, as the season began. On the third game, though, he slid, Corey slid into second base, hit his head, and broke his neck. And Corey is now a C5 quadriplegic. He's paralyzed from the chest down, his very limited use of his arms. This young man who used to run the bases and throw the ball and hit and make people cheer, now he really struggles to feed himself and to wash his hair and to wheel to class. Well, uh, Corey went through a lot of rehab and therapy, and then he went back to class at Arizona State University. When he moved to campus, his father, Dale, moved into an extended stay hotel near campus, and every morning his dad gets up early in the morning and goes over to the dorm and helps Corey get ready for school, helps him uh, bathe and get dressed and eat and get into his wheelchair. And then they get into Dale's truck And Dale drives him to the building where his first class is, gets him out, and watches as Corey wheels himself into the building. After lunch, Dale returns to campus. He takes his son to more therapy, then drops him off at his dorm. Corey spends the evening studying, hanging out with friends. At 11 o'clock, Dale comes back to campus and helps Corey get ready for bed. He tucks his son into bed. He turns the TV on on a timer, says, Good night, Betty, and returns to his hotel. Uh, Dale said, when you're a dad, you're a dad forever. Now, if you can enter into that story with your imagination, that scene, then you are ready to read Hosea chapter 11. Some of you will be very pleased. You'll be pleased to know that after what has felt like weeks and weeks of hard text. Hosea takes a rather significant turn in chapter 11. He had been condemning and criticizing and inveighing and arguing against Israel. He's threatened death and judgment and exile. He quotes God saying to his people, I hate you. What you are doing is making me so angry. He's, he's trying desperately to awaken the Israelites to their true condition before God. But in contrast to that, we have opened before us one of the most tender passages in all the Bible. There are a few passages that make me, when I read them and study, I think to myself, I am inadequate to speak about these things. I don't have the vocabulary or the imagination or the rhetorical power to convey what's really in this text. And yet we press on. So let's read this text. We're going to read Hosea chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. We don't do this all the time, but I would like you this morning, if you would please, in honor of God and His Word, let's stand as we read from Hosea chapter 11. Let us hear the Word of the living God. Hosea chapter 11, and I'll start reading in verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the bales and they burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms, but they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek, and I bent down to feed them. How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I devastate Ephraim again, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One among you. I will not come against their cities." They will follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion. And when he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. They will come from Egypt, trembling like sparrows, from Assyria, fluttering like doves. I will settle them in their homes, declares the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So what is clear to us as we read through Hosea chapter 11 is that the image has changed. Hosea has been about the relationship between God and Israel, and Hosea has pictured it most often for us as a relationship between a husband and his wife. We've learned about Hosea and Gomer and her unfaithfulness To her husband. But here in this passage, the image is changed. Now we have the image of a father and his son. In Ezekiel 16, the image is of a father and a young lady, a daughter. Here it's though a father and his son. And this chapter is about a heartbroken dad. Uh, There are men in this room for whom this passage speaks with particular clarity because they understand what it's like to be brokenhearted. Like the dad in this, the father in this passage. Um, Israel's rebellion—it's been the focus of the book, and it's all the more tragic here because of how much they were loved. This morning, what I want to do is I want to talk to you about God's love, and I want to show you from this passage six characteristics of God's love. Not so that you can imitate it, not so that you can think, "Yep, this—I'm going to check this off my list. This is the type of person I'm going to be." That's not the point of the passage. In fact, we'll see—you can't love like this. The point of the passage actually is to remind us how to receive God's love. Uh, Now, I want to share with you these six characteristics. And just before I do that, I'll confess I had help in formulating these six from a a scholar, an Old Testament scholar named uh, Gary Smith. So let's start here. God's love. God's love, number one, is particular love. It's particular love. Uh, We read this passage, it says about God's love, we recognize He has particular love. You notice not only uh, Hosea uh, is a new image, there's a new image here, but Hosea in this passage often refers to Israel's history. That's actually going to happen for the rest of the book. And here the focus is on the Exodus. Next time we're together in Hosea, we're going to talk a lot about Jacob, more history. But this is about the Exodus and how God rescued His people from Egypt. And he uses this image of sonship. I think it's a quotation or, or Hosea has in mind what God said through Moses to Pharaoh in Exodus 4.22. Look what it says. It says, Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. God has a relationship with Israel that he doesn't have with any other people. They are God's son. The nation is God's son. I like your children. Um, I try to know your kids' names. I talk to them. I try to be extra quiet with the shyest of them. I don't want to make them cry. I learned that lesson the hard way. Um, uh, I like your kids, um, but I don't love them at all like I love my own kids. Uh, Every father has particular love. Now, I'm going to use this word even though it might make some of you anxious. This is particular love. This is electing love. He loves them unlike he loves any other nation. Here's the proof. Here's the proof of this. Verse 8, look what it says. In the middle there, it says, How can I treat you like Adma? How can I treat, make you like Zeboim? Where are these cities? Does anybody know, anybody know where they are <laughs> Uh, Adma and Zeboim. Adma and Zeboim are small cities that were on the same plain as Sodom and Gomorrah. They were destroyed by God in Genesis just like uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and and Zeboim. They they were not only destroyed, they were wiped completely from the face of the earth. We don't even know where they they were, probably under part of the Dead Sea somewhere. Now I want to ask Hosea. Hosea... Why did you make me figure that out? Why why did you make me look that up, these cities? (laughs) They're they're not known by anybody for anything. They're not even known for their wickedness. You know about Sodom and Gomorrah, but you don't know about Adma and Zeboim. Hosea is hard on his readers, isn't he? That's not making things easy for us. Why did you refer to these cities? They're gone. They're just completely gone. Now Why? Why don't you know anybody from Adma and Zeboim? You know people who are uh, from the nation of Israel. Uh, You know people who are descendants of Abraham, but you don't know anybody who's from Adma or Zeboim. Now, why is that? Well, uh, maybe it's because the Israelites were just better people than the people of Adma and Zeboim, and God just decided to preserve them as a reward to the Israelites because of their fine, upstanding moral behavior. No, uh, that can't be it. Uh, I want to suggest to you something about verse 9. Remember, Hosea is hard on us. Verse 9, it says, I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I devastate Ephraim again. There's the word again. Again? Why is the word again there? God hasn't destroyed Ephraim or Israel yet. Why does he say again? I think what's happening here is he's doing something that, that it happens elsewhere in the prophets. God has already talked about Sodom and Gomorrah or Adma and Zeboim. And he has already condemned the Israelites and said that they are just as immoral as the people of, uh, of Sodom and Gomorrah. I think he's making a substitution there. He's substituted Ephraim in for Sodom's name. You're just like them and that's what I'm going to call you. You're you're just like Sodom. I can substitute. You're interchangeable. This is not a passage that says that Israel was saved because they're so righteous, such upstanding people. So why did God save them? Why do you know people who are Jewish but you don't know anybody who's from Adma or Zeboim? Because of God's Particular, selective, electing love. When I was Israel was a child, I loved him. R.C. Sproul describes the conversation that he had with a young woman after one of his uh, lectures. He'd been talking about the sovereign grace of God, and um, this young woman was uncomfortable with this. She didn't really care for this very much. She came up to him afterwards, and uh, she she was a little nervous. Talking to R.C. Sproul, she would have been. And uh, she, so, so they talked for a little bit about her life and her roommate and her, how things are going in college and things like that. And then finally she said, I don't like it when you talk about God's sovereignty like that. I don't like election. It doesn't seem fair to me. And R.C. Sproul said, oh, really? Uh, so let me ask you a question. Go ahead. Uh, you just told me that your roommate is not a Christian, but that you are. Is that right? Yep. why are you a Christian and she isn't? She thought about it for a minute. He said, I know. I know why it is. I bet it's because you're smarter than she is. You're probably just wise enough to know that the Bible is true and that it should be accepted and believed and you're a Christian because you're you're just brighter than she is. The young woman said, no, no, she's... She's, she's actually brilliant. She's really smart. Oh. Sproul said, well, maybe you're a Christian because, uh, and she's not, because you're a better person than she is. You're just more moral. It's, it's your goodness that explains why you're a Christian and she's not, that, that uh, God has just rewarded you with eternal life because he has recognized your fine goodness. She said, that doesn't seem to match what the Bible says about everyone falling short of God's glory. And I don't really think that I'm a better person than she is. He said, well, surely you you can't think that you're a Christian and she's not because you're white and she's black. No, she said, that's not it. Or because you're poor and she's rich. You know, um, it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of of heaven. And she said, no, that, that can't be it either. I don't think so. Maybe, he said, it's because you went to a Christian school and she didn't the woman said, well, um, actually, I went to a public school. She went to the Christian school. She was homeschooled. She was in eighth grade. Then she went to a Christian school. Hmm. What could could it be? If it's it's not because you're wiser or more moral or poorer or better educated or of the right ethnicity, what, what possibly could it be? And he said, the truth of the matter is that if it's not you... And I think we're close to establishing that it's not you. If it's not you, the only answer must be found in God's sovereign kindness, God's particular love. Remember what he told the nation in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 7? He said, the Lord did not set his affection on you. He doesn't love you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples. For you are the fewest of all peoples. God didn't choose Israel because they were the most impressive nation, because they were the smartest, the wisest, uh, the most talented, the most uh, uh, ingenious. Uh, It was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. If you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus, it is because of God's sovereign kindness. God did not rescue me. God did not rescue me from my rebellious state against him because he needed another bald, sarcastic New Yorker. He already had my father. (laughs) That's more than enough. God rescued me because of his mercy, his inexplicable kindness. And until that moves you to worship, until it moves you to worship, remember Paul said that election is to the praise of God's glorious grace. Until it moves you to worship, you don't understand it like the apostles understood it, God's particular love. Now, number two, God's love is teaching love. God's love is teaching love. Now God's instruction to the people is clear from the text. I'm going to show that to you. But it is also bound up in this word "son." In the Bible, in this culture, your son bore your characteristics. He was like you. Uh, he bore your name, and he would would uh, have your profession. He represented you, and he became what you were. If you were a farmer, your son was going to be a farmer. If you were a carpenter, your son was going to be a carpenter. You would teach him how to farm, or you would teach him how to make things out of wood. That's the way it is. Uh, the, Teaching is wrapped up in the word son itself. But the text in verses 3 and 4 is much more explicit uh, than that. Look what it says here. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms. That's how you teach a child to walk, isn't it? You, You hold their arms like this and you walk behind them. Some of you, when your children were toddlers, were trying to teach them this, you thought that you were going to be permanently stooped like this because you spent hours and hours doing this. You just think about that, the privilege that it is to see those first steps. Pictures are taken. Phones come out. Videos go on. Right? There's loud hallelujahs and praising in the land. Come to daddy. Come to daddy. You can do it. You can do it. Oh, that's my big boy. God taught the people. Uh, When my son was young, younger than than most, he learned to ride his bicycle without training wheels. That gave us a great amount of freedom. We could ride all over town, and and we did with our bicycles. Um, Luke learned really young. And and they don't make uh, over-the-road bicycles for little children. We would ride all over town, and uh, (laughs) poor Loopy, the miles would go by, and I'd pedal once like this, and this little kid had 12-inch bicycles, and he'd be going like this. And he keep up with us. Uh, And and they make little children's bicycles to be indestructible, which means his weighed about 400 pounds. His bicycle was heavier than mine. Well, we come to the bottom of a hill, and he was I don't know two and a half, and he just this this hill is just insurmountable. So uh, I would pick up his bicycle and I would set his handlebars on top of mine. His bike was short enough that it didn't hit the ground. It was that high. And I would hold on to it with one hand and then I'd put him on my bicycle seat and I'd walk up the hill pushing him and carrying his bike. That's how he made it around town. The reason that I can tell you that is because I taught him to ride his bicycle around town. I was with him. He's my son. I held you by the arms and taught you how to walk. God didn't send his law to the people. He didn't, he didn't leave it with a note uh, for them. He didn't drop the law from heaven on a fishing line. He, he taught them. Verse 4 takes this kind of odd turn as, it, as we talk about God's teaching love. This is odd. Um, it's, it, we're uncertain as to whether or not verse 4 is switching metaphors to maybe talking about animals. He's going from from being a father and a son to animals. Is that possible on a trainer? The, the words cords and ties are animal words. And then uh, here's the spot in the text where the NIV and the ESV differ so much. When you were reading, when you were reading did you notice that in your ESV if you have one? My NIV says, to them I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek. The ESV uh, talks about easing the yoke off the nation's jaws. (laughs) There's animal language there. Uh, You can see uh, lifting and easing and uh, jaws and cheek. The reason they're struggling to translate this is because of the the change of image. And it's unusual that he would say, I led you with cords of, literally it says, human Human cords. What does that mean? God led them with human cords and love. Here's an interesting suggestion for you. Um, remember, Hosea is hard on us. Uh, think about this. Dwayne Garrett says that he thinks that the cord of human may be a reference to Moses, that Moses was the one that God used to lead the people. Remember in Exodus, when, when they come out of Egypt and they go to the bottom of Mount Sinai, God comes down and there's thunder and loud noises and lightning and fire. And the people are terrified. And, and they said to Moses, oh, please don't let God speak to us directly. You tell us what he says. And, and, and God appoints Moses as the, the intermediary. He's the human leader of the people. Human cords ties of love he, he taught them now third here we move to providing love God provide God's love is providing love there's a theme that appears also in verses three and four what does God provide two things number one he provides healing for them it says at the end of verse three they did not realize it was I who healed them we're looking a lot these days back into ex- today, back into Exodus and Deuteronomy. Listen to what Exodus 15:26 says. He said, If you will diligently obey the Lord your God and do what is right in His sight and pay attention to His commandments and keep all His statutes, then all the diseases that I brought on the Egyptians I will not bring on you, for I, the Lord, am your healer. He, he heals them. Remember, this is a promise that is not ours under the new covenant. We don't have the same physical promise of, of healing as a guarantee of the covenant. God provides them with healing. God also provided them with food. Verse 4, I bent down to feed them. Oh, when you have little children, does it ever seem like those days of feeding them are going to end? Cutting up chicken and vegetables and beef and setting them before them, cleaning them up. I bent down to feed them. We go back to Exodus again. Look at Exodus 16.1. When they journeyed from Elam, the entire company of Israelites came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after their exodus from the land of Egypt. The entire company of Israelites murmured against Moses and Aaron in the desert. The Israelites said to them, Oh, if only we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full, for you have brought us into the desert to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, I'm going to rain bread from heaven for you and the people will go out and gather the amount for each day so that I may test them. Will they walk in my law or not? God feeds them. He feeds them every single day. He gives them manna. You can see in this text and you can see back in Exodus here uh, that even though God is providing for the people, even though he's meeting all of their needs, even miraculously, they still have this longing for Egypt. It's a part of the insanity of their condition before God, their rebellion. Look at the text here. Verse 3, they didn't realize it. Um, they, they, they were uh, Verse 2, the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed the bales and they burned incense to images. Verse 7 says, my people are determined to turn from me. The people had been taken out of Egypt, but Egypt has not yet been taken out of the people. They're still longing for it. Remember, in Exodus 60, I don't know what the people are talking about. They were slaves in Egypt, and now they're talking about meat, and other places they talk about bread, and cantaloupes, and leeks, and onions, and how how wonderful it was in Egypt. They were slaves. They were beaten. They were made to, to work. Their children were thrown into the Nile River or killed some other way. And they're just longing for it. This is insanity. It's the insanity of people in rebellion against God. That same insanity grips everybody in this room. Do do God's commands feel onerous to you? You read the Bible and you see what things God says no to. You are inclined, there is part of you that is inclined to think, God is taking me to a rocky, awful place. And and without him my life would be happy and carefree and I would be able to sit by the pool and have uh, drinks with umbrellas and it would just be so much better if I didn't have to follow God. Is there part of you that, that has that comes to mind? It's part of the insanity of our rebellion against God and it's very clear here in the people. They're blind. They're blind to what was happening to them in Egypt and what God is providing them for with Now the fourth characteristic of God's love here it is we move to verses 5 through 7 disciplining love disciplining love God calls Israel his son so we look into the old testament what does the bible say about sons Deuteronomy 21 18 through 21 If a person has a stubborn, rebellious son who pays no attention to his father or mother and they discipline him to no avail, his father and mother must seize him and bring him to the elders at the gate of his city. They must declare to the elders of his city, our son is stubborn and rebellious and pays no attention to what we say. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of his city must stone him to death. In this way you will purge out wickedness from among you and all Israel will hear about it and be afraid. Now remember, remember, uh, this seems harsh but remember that uh, this was written to a nation that did not have reform schools or prisons or probation or rehab centers the whole stability of the society was bound up in the authority of a mom and dad in their home it was the cornerstone of societal stability and taking this if the image is here this is what you do with a rebellious son what should god do with his rebellious son this is what God warned would happen to them. What Hosea says in verse 5, what he refers to here is kind of a reverse exodus. Uh, he refers here to Egypt and Assyria. Egypt is where they came from so many years ago. Assyria is where they're going to go to Uh, The Assyrians are going to rule over them. There's a a reverse exodus going on. This is God. I've heard this line only in sitcoms. I've never heard it in real life. But this is God the Father saying to his nation's son, I brought you into this world and I will take you out of it. That's what he's saying to them. You're going to go into exile. I brought you out. You're going back in. Verse 6 is about invasion. The people are stubbornly committed to walk away from him and God is going to discipline them with the sword. If I understand the New Testament correctly, painful discipline is actually one of the ways that we know that God truly loves his people. How, How do you know you're really God's son? The Bible says painful discipline is one of the ways. I wonder if your life is unusually hard right now. And one of the things that you're wishing, you are desperately wishing for this to end, for this unusually hard season to be over. You wish things were were different in your life. Can I encourage you this morning that that pain is, is, is a sign of the fact that God loves you, that he is determined to make you holy, that your perspective will be different if in the midst of it you can say to God, I don't like this right now. But in the midst of it, would you make me the sort of person you make people through pain like this? Accomplish in my life what you're trying to accomplish. That's one of the reasons why uh, James and others, Paul, tell us to rejoice in our suffering, because it's in the midst of pain that God straightens twisted where God does some of his best work. Now, we need to spend what, what little time we have left uh, thinking uh, together about the, number five here God's persevering love. God's persevering love. Number five. Uh, That's the theme of verses 8 and 9. And these are among the most passionate verses in all the Bible. These are the words of a father who is in agony. This is a father who has tried everything with his son, and it will not work. When his son was small, he spanked him, he put him in timeout, he made behavior charts and promised rewards, he tried military school and counseling, and uh, his son has been into rehab and into prison, and his father visited him over and over and over again, he drove him to rehab, he picked him up from rehab, and nothing is working, what is he going to do with his son, what can he do, how can I give you up Ephraim, how can I hand you over Israel. What the law says is very simple. We know what God should do. The law says very simply, stoning. That's what he should do. The same thing should have happened to Gomer. Remember uh, when Gomer left her husband Hosea and entered a life of prostitution, what should have happened to her? She should have been stoned as an adulteress. But uh, uh, the prophet and God both relent. Why? The text says, My heart is changed within me doesn't mean that God is, is confused. He's in anguish. All my compassion is aroused. His compassion is warmed. This phrase is used in Genesis to describe Joseph when he sees Benjamin. He's been apart from his brother for so many years. And he sees Joseph and his, all his compassion is aroused. It's a phrase that shows up in 1 Kings chapter 3. There's two women, two prostitutes that are brought before Solomon. They have two babies. One's dead, one's alive. And they're arguing before Solomon about whose baby is who. Uh, They're both claiming that the the living baby is theirs. And Solomon has this brilliant plan to just cut the baby in half and give half to each of them. And the, the real mother, her compassion is aroused. And she says, oh no, no, just give the baby to her. Let the baby live. Compassion. God's compassion is a. He loves his son. So what does he do? He relents. I will not carry out my fierce anger, will not devastate Ephraim. He' is not going to wipe the planet uh, the, the nation off the planet. He's not going to make them like Adma and Zeboim. Why? For I am God and not a man, the holy One among you. What the prophet is here describing are qualities of God, love and holiness that, that far surpass any human being. Why is God going to relent? Why can he relent? Because he is God and not a man. This phrase first appears in Numbers 23, I am God and not a man. And when he says, I am God and not a man, I don't lie. Here he says, I am God and not a man with relenting love. Here is the reason why you cannot accomplish that you cannot be like this I know in our relationships with one another as we attempt to forgive and confront and reconcile and be with one another we push out the boundaries of what feels like our ability as human beings there is no pushing out for God this is he is God his forgiving love is greater and longer and higher and wider than you can imagine think of how we know this from the Bible Matthew chapter 18, Jesus is having a discussion with his disciples and Peter wants to talk to him about how much he forgives. Should I forgive someone seven times? It's a very familiar passage. Jesus answers, no, not, not seven, but 77 times. Uh, Peter had been doing a little math. See, the, the rabbi said, forgive three times. And Peter's doing math. Well, Jesus is a really forgiving guy. So if three is the rabbi's uh, expected standard, maybe I'll double it and add one. That's seven. That's a lot. I've done a good math. Jesus says, Peter, you haven't even begun to do your math. Take off your shoes and socks, Peter. You're going to need all toes to count this high. The God-man says 77 times God's forgiveness. Why? Because he's God and not a man. When no human on earth, when no human on earth will forgive you, will love you, will have anything to do with you, God's grace abounds. Psalm 27, the psalmist writes about uh, what happens to him if his father and mother leave him. His father and mother, the ones who are supposed to have the most, the human beings on earth who are supposed to have the most compassion on him, if my father and my mother turn their back on me, if the people that are the closest to me, of anybody in the whole world, if they forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Why? Because he's God and not a man. Charles Spurgeon once preached on this passage, and he, he argued there are there are limits. There are limits that bind the fullness of the love of human beings. We push against them, don't we, in our relationships with each other. But I, I wonder if any of these apply to you. We are limited in our ability to control our anger. God is not so limited. We are limited in our willingness to reconcile. God is not. We are limited by our moods and our dispositions in the moment. God is not. We are limited by our demand that when wrong is done, you must, you must pay the price. You must pay me back for what you've done. God is not so limited. We're limited by our desire that if you wrong me, I I may forgive you as long as there's probation. But this is a message about people that have grievously spurned God's love, and, and, and still he says to them, my compassion is aroused, my heart is charged within me. His grace abounds. It's persevering love. It, it's so magnificent that Paul prays and he says to the Ephesians, I want you to know how high, wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. I want you to know that. And then he, he says, I want you to know this love that surpasses knowledge. (laughs) It's a wonderful phrase. I want you to know the unknowable. It's a miracle to know how how full and rich God's love is. One more characteristic of God's love in the passage. It's the focus of verses 10 and 11. It's rescuing love, rescuing love. They will follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children will come trembling from the the west. Do you remember a few weeks ago we talked about God? He compared himself to a lion. What did he say? I'm going to be like a lion. I'm going to tear you apart, you Israelites, because of your rebellion against me. And here he is roaring to call his people home. They're going to hear it. They're going to respond at the end of verse 11. I will settle them in their homes. It's the exact opposite of exile. Brings them out of Egypt. They rebel against him. He sends them away. But he is determined. He is going to call them home and put them home. I wonder if you notice that there's this tension in this passage. It actually is a tension that runs all the way through the Bible. Uh, some say, uh, actually, through the whole Old Testament. Does God love Israel or does God hate Israel? Is he angry with them or is he going to call them home? Is he going to justly punish them for their sins or is he going to let them off? He's a God and not a man. He is God, not a man. He's more loving than any uh, person has ever been. H- how how can this be? How is this tension going to be solved? Imagine, oh, be careful because uh, Romans tells us to be very careful about thinking this way, but... What are the people of Adma and Zeboim? They stand before God someday and they say, you let them off. You're so mad at us because of our behavior. You let those people off. Paul Paul warns us against that thought. But actually, the, the, the Bible answers it already. I, I think the Gospel of Matthew Points us in the right direction. We read a few minutes ago when when uh, as Pastor Scott was reading from the book of Matthew. Uh, Matthew quotes Hosea. I wonder if you did you catch that connect, Did you see that connection? Uh, Matthew quotes Hosea, in Matthew 2 he says, Out of Egypt I called my son, which is verse 1 of Hosea 11. It's an odd way that he uses Hosea, it's odd. Uh, This is not really a prediction, it's not really a prophecy in the sense that Jesus fulfilled it. But Matthew is saying there that Jesus has come to do what Israel could not. He is the ultimate son of God. He was called out of Egypt as a boy, just like this nation. He went into the wilderness and tempted, was tempted, just like the Israelites. But unlike them, he obeyed in every way. He obeyed so much so that he obeyed even to the cross. And it was on the cross where the sin that appears to have been overlooked was paid for. During his second inaugural address, Abraham Lincoln sought to uh, give some context to the war. It's, It's a sermonic, almost a sermonic address. Listen to a couple lines from it. He said, fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray, that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass by, pass away. Yet if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondsman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword, as was said 3,000 years ago, so still it must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. That line, every drop of blood drawn by the lash Paid by another drawn with the sword. Every sin, every wandering away, every turning to the false gods. Paid with the blood of the Savior on the cross. This is the son who died and rose again. The only way to respond properly to this great love is to turn to him in dependent faith. Recognize that he's the savior. He's the one who is the embodiment of God's holiness and he is the one who came for the sake of God's love to bear his wrath. And he offers life and forgiveness to all who will receive it. Some of you read this passage and you have a son that you wonder about. You read this. You have a son like this. You you have said things like verse 8. What can I do? What can I do with you? Or you think about your own rebellion and you wonder, you wonder, is it possible, is it possible to revel in this rebellion, to revel in this rebellion so much so that you wear out God's grace? You didn't do anything to earn God's love. Do not think by your deeds you can lose God's love. No one but the Holy God, no one but the Holy God could conceive of a plan like this. No one but the Holy God. It's a plan that's centered on His Son, His great, His great Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before You this morning and we recognize that there is majesty, and wonder in these verses. You, you almost sound weak in the, the desperation with which you love these people. You are not hard-hearted toward them. And, and you appear vulnerable before them. We recognize, Father, that you are the great king the great God who is full of mercy and compassion and kindness. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters this morning who, sitting in this pew, they are convinced that they have extended themselves beyond the reach of your compassion and your mercy. They, They fear to come before you because you are the Holy One in our midst. Oh, Father, I pray that you would remind them of your great love that surpasses all the best rest. It's an ocean full of blessing. Lord, we pray that you would work in our church, that we would exalt in this grace as we worship and come before you and as we extend it to one another. You have loved us in a way that no one else has, and we worship you for it. How we thank you. We thank you together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.